This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I want to, you know, sort of tell you about living donor liver transplantation. I know those who were here before, last talk, I think, was on living donor kidney transplantation and this is, has obviously the living donor liver transplantation has its roots in um, living donor kidney transplantation, which actually started first. So there's 18,000 people waiting for liver transplantation in the United States, and about 6,000 of those will get a liver transplant every year. If you aren't lucky enough to get a liver transplant, you may die or become too sick to transplant and that's this sort of the same thing that we know about um, kidney transplantation and heart transplantation. We just don't have enough deceased donors available, and so about 10% of the people on the waiting list or um, 1,800 people die every year without a, a transplant. So we can you know, try to expand the donor pool, and one of the things that has happened is that we're using donors that are older and older. Um, you know, I think our oldest donor has been about 80. Um, in Europe, I think they've used donors are 85. So for all of us old people, we still have a chance to be a donor. Steatotic means the liver has a lot of fat in it, and um, fat is not only bad for you in your liver, it's also bad if we take the liver and cool it down and then put it back into somebody that fat doesn't act well. High-risk donors are people who, say, uh, IV drug abuser who has an opioid um, overdose, a narcotic overdose, with a, you know, dies with a needle in their arm. Um, those, when you have needles in your arm and cherry needles, you have a risk of transmitting hepatitis C and HIV. But because those risks are actually relatively low with a modern testing, um, the risk of transmission of HIV and even the highest risk donors about one in a thousand. And if you have a one in ten chance of dying while you're waiting for a liver transplant, that might be sound might sound like a pretty good trade-off. Hepatitis C is one in three hundred, um, but it's a treatable disease now. And we're actually taking livers and kidneys from donors that have hepatitis C and using those in people without hepatitis C and then treating their, the hepatitis C that they get infected with afterwards with medication, and the medication's very effective, and we can clear the virus, and those people um, have benefited from transplant. DCD is a donor who dies after their heart stops. Most donors are donors where their brain is, has had an injury, a stroke, a car accident, a gunshot, and their brain is dead. There are people whose um, brain is still alive, but they have a very serious brain injury and the family decides to withdraw support um, because their expectation is of life afterwards is very poor. And so what we do is after the support's been withdrawn, we see how fast that, that donor expires. And if they expire quickly, then we can use those organs. If they don't expire quickly, then we can't use the organs, and those are called donors after cardiac death. Split livers are similar to living donors where we actually take a liver from somebody who's died and then divide that liver into two pieces and give one to one person and one to the other. Typically, we use those, the small, I'll show you this a little bit later, but there's a left and a right side of the liver, and the left side is actually relatively small, and so that'll fit nicely into an infant. 
whereas the right side of the liver would go to an adult. And then what we're going to talk about today is living donors. Liver transplantation is a little bit different than living donor kidney transplantation in that the liver regenerates. You know, what happens after you donate a kidney is your remaining kidney gets larger. But this is, um, with liver, your liver actually hypertrophies to grow to the size that you need. And this is Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. And, and every day, an eagle would come and take out part of his liver, and then it would regenerate. So even back a long time ago, people knew that the liver regenerated. Not quite sure how they knew that, but that was how this myth came about. Well, so here's the operation we're talking about, and this is what your liver looks like. If you've seen a liver in a butcher shop, it's a solid organ. It just doesn't have like a line, but the blood vessels turn out and bile ducts turn out that they have a way of dividing. And so this is the artery to the liver, and this is what's called the portal vein, and the green structure is the bile duct. And then this large vessel here is the vena cava. That's the blood vessel that returns blood from your legs back to your heart and then the veins from the liver actually drain into this and so what we do is we actually divide the liver and and this would be the left side here and then this would be the right side and we can use either the left side or the right side and we'll talk a little bit more about how we make that decision and what that involves we then take this side and this one the right side of the liver and then we reconnect the vein to the liver that's the vein that that drains the blood out of the liver. There's a second vein that in this donor, they showed a second vein that drains it. Typically, there's only one. There's a portal vein that brings the blood in. The artery brings brings the arterial blood in. And then the bile duct, where the bile exits the liver. So the first living donation was a kidney transplant done in 1954 between identical twins. And so you know that was sort of the test where you know identical twins don't have re- don't won't reject and so if you have a happen to have your identical twin you could take their kidney and that demonstrated that the technical aspects of kidney transplant worked but the immunosuppression wasn't necessary the thing that really hindered the development of transplantation were two things. One, the development of immunosuppressive drugs. And when you think about immunosuppressive drugs, they suppress your immune system. And when they suppress your immune system, you're more likely to get an infection. And so it wasn't, so we got better immunosuppressive drugs, but we also got better medicines and particularly antivirals that prevented this major side effect of the immunosuppressive drugs, which were viral infections. So living liver donation began in 1989. It was usually parents who would donate to their infant. Um, biliary atresia is a disease of, of basically of newborns, and those um, uh, children need, typically need transplants within the first two years of life. We would have a lot of children who would die waiting, and the things that helped it were, one is the living donor liver transplantation, and then also... Um, the split liver, so splitting a liver between two people, either in a living donor situation or in the deceased donor situation, really allowed children to get adequate numbers of organs for transplant. And it was considered to be an acceptable risk for the parents, something that most parents would, I think, would take that risk um, to, to save the life of their child. So adult-to-adult living donor transplant really started in about 1983, and as we'll talk about, it was really it started in Asian countries because there was no deceased donor. We started our first li- doing living donors in pediatric patients in 1992, and started an adult program in 2000. 
There are about three to 400 living donor liver transplants done annually in the United States. We do about 25 to 30 a year. So we're, you know, a moderate size in terms of the overall number. We're sort of one of the larger programs. So we wouldn't do living donor transplantation if there are enough deceased donors available. And the reason is, is that if I have two people and one of them today I transplanted a living donor transplant and the other one I transplanted a deceased donor transplant, if I looked at their outcome at a year or five years, they're actually pretty similar. So from the time of transplant, the outcomes for living donor transplant versus deceased donor transplant are, are roughly the same, but living donor transplant, because you get part of a liver, has more complications associated with it, and there's really no benefit um, to a donor if there's cadaver, a cadaveric organ is available. So that's sort of one of our, and I think one of the main principles about living donor transplantation is we do it because there are not enough organs. So to look at the benefit of living donor transplantation in the United States, we have to understand how organs are given to people. How do we decide who is the top patient on the waiting list? Who's the first patient that we decide to give a liver to? And it's actually not a waiting list, it's a priority list. So we give, we prioritize patients based on how sick they are, and we calculate how sick they are based on three simple blood tests, uh, the creatinine, the what's called the INR, which is a measure of your clotting, and then the, um, the bilirubin, and then Recently, we added in the sodium, and if we, if we use those values for a particular patient, we can tell how bad their liver disease and, and what their risk of dying in the near future is. And so the higher the MELD score, the greater the uh, risk of dying that the person will have. So this is a graph here of the MELD score, and this is the 90-day risk of dying. So what's the chance of a person, depending on their MELD score, dying within 90 days. And you can see that a very low MELD score, which is about as low as you can get, is six, um, that you have a relatively low risk of dying in the next 90 days. We, in UCSF, our transplantation occurs somewhere around 25 to 30 MELD score, and you can see that those patients have a 60-some percent chance of dying in the next 30 next 90 days. So you can see that, you know, this is a significant, when you have liver disease and need liver transplant, you have a really significant risk of dying. And so what we're trying to do is to, is to transplant people before they get too sick so that they don't have to have this risk of dying associated with having a, a liver that's doing very poorly. And the problem is, is that getting sick with liver disease doesn't mean that every day you just get a little bit sicker until finally you get sick enough and we call you up for a transplant. What happens is, is that you go along and you're medium sick or not too sick, and all of a sudden something happens. You get an infection, you have a bleed, some event happens, and all of a sudden you're really, really sick. And some of those people are, get just sick enough that we can get them a transplant other people just get too sick and die, and other people sort of, we give them antibiotics or whatever, and they get better, and they kind of get back to, to down here where they have a significant risk of dying in the next 90 days, but we're not able to get those people transplanted because we don't have enough organs. And so really what we're talking about is trying to get these people transplanted before they end up being really sick because a lot of those people just fall off the cliff and end up dying before we can get them a liver for transplant. It turns out that depends on where you live in the country, 
your chance of getting a transplant. So this is the median MELD score. So half the people are above this MELD score and half the people are below this MELD score for people who get deceased donors. So donors get a liver from those persons who died by where you live. And you can see that 32 is the dark blue and California is the darkest blue. We just have more people that need liver transplants than we have organs available for them. And you can see there's other places in the country like Florida where you can get transplanted at a relatively low MELD score. And so we have a lot of flow of patients that leave California and go to Florida to get their transplant. You know, obviously you have to have the will and the means in order to do that and the insurance company that will send you down there. But you can see that this is sort of a problem of and why we need to consider living donor liver transplantation. This is sort of availability of the donor organ by sort of regions. The DSAs are different regions or different areas. And you can see that if you are transplanting people at a low MELD score, so they're not very sick, nobody does living donor transplants. If over here where we are, where we have people that are quite sick, you can see that those in those areas where there's great need, then people do living donor liver transplantation. So we talked a little bit about you know, why we do this. And there's, there was a large study, it was a nine-center study but from the NIH that looked at many of the issues around living donor liver transplantation. And one of the issues was is that, well, who benefited from getting a living donor transplant? And it, as we talked about, the people that don't have a living donor, they need to get sick. And they need to get sick enough that they can get high enough on the waiting list to get a transplant, but not too sick where they die. And so the advantage then is, is to be able to have a living donor so that you can get, you're sick enough to need a transplant, but not so sick that you're in the intensive care unit hanging on. And so it turned out if you look at the person who gets a living donor transplant, the risk of dying is about half of the risk of dying if you don't have a living donor. And so what, what they, by the way they did this is they took patients that were on the waiting list and see if they had a, a, you know, somebody that, you know, I want to be a living donor. And, and we rule out a lot of living donors, wrong blood type, something wrong with anatomy. And they, so they looked at the people that had a donor come forward and then people that had a donor come forward who got a transplant and donor for, come forward who didn't get a transplant and compared those two groups. And it turned out that the people that had a living donor had a lower mortality. So that's sort of the advantage is more that you prevent death prior to transplant rather than doing better after transplant. It also works in that fashion in that, you know, people that are really sick with these high MELD scores, they're in the intensive care unit, they've got kidneys not working, you know, lungs are in trouble, and they're very sick, and so it takes them longer to get better after their transplant. So the people that personally a living donor transplant not only decreases the risk of death, they also decrease the risk of complications after the surgery and have a faster recovery time. And then there's advantage to the donor to knowing that they're helping a family member or friend who is sick and in need of a liver transplant. So we offer living donor transplantation because of these issues. Part of our decision-making depends on how long we think that it's going to take somebody to get a transplant and how sick they are. Typically, if somebody's very sick, we don't offer living donor transplant because they have the ability to get a deceased donor transplant. So they're you know, they have a high MELD score and they're able to get a deceased donor transplant. So again, it's sort of we use the living donor transplant when we don't have uh, uh, the ability for the recipient to get a, a deceased donor transplant. 
and as we talked about, the benefit really depends on the availability of the um, deceased owner organs. So we and you know centers and sort of cities such as ourselves, New York, Chicago, where there's not enough deceased owners, we offer this as an alternative. So how do we decide who can be a donor? Who can be a recipient is usually relatively clear as long as they, you know, have liver disease and on the waiting list and um, would benefit from a transplant, then we would consider a living donor transplant. If they're too sick, if they're in the ICU, those patients have access to deceased donor transplant, and so they typically would get a deceased donor and a living donor transplant. So what we do is we send a health history questionnaire to the potential donors. So... Typically, this is done by the recipient. So the recipient, you know, thinks, well, let's see, I, I got my brother. I haven't seen him in a while, but let me see if he wants to donate. And so it's, those are very difficult conversations, as you can imagine, to, you know, ask somebody to risk their life for you. And, and, but we have a whole process, what we call Living Donor Champion Program, where we have, teach people how to ask because it's an important thing to be to learn how to ask and and a lot of times it's not the recipient who asks it's actually their spouse say or their friend or somebody who who may feel much more comfortable about asking about donation so anyway we get this we send out this health history questionnaire you go online you fill out a health history questionnaire we review that and then we discuss, you know, sort of the overview of the process with the donor, and when the liver transplant evaluation is complete, we then request donor authorization for the donor's workup. And there's a lot of testing that goes on because we want to make sure that the person's healthy enough to donate and that they're, they have anatomy that um, will work in terms of uh, their health and potential, um, the potential donation. We, you know, if there's a problem we're not sure of, typically we always err on the side of telling the donor no. So there, we have a lot of blood work. We have a CT scan, abdominal ultrasound, echocardiogram, MRI scan, and then other tests depending on age and risk factors. So if you're older, you'll get a cardiac stress test in addition to the echocardiogram just to make sure you're heart would tolerate the operation. The surgery is six to eight hours long, so we usually go in the operating room at 7.30, usually done sort of in the one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon, and from there the, in the operating room, the donor goes to the intensive care unit. Donor remains in the hospital four to five days in general. Uh, we see them the first and second week after leaving the hospital, and then two months after surgery, they'll have an abdominal <laughs> ultrasound and then annual follow-up. So we surveyed our donors to find out how long it took them to recover, and so we asked them how long did it take to, to, before you felt 100%. Now, 100% is obviously in their mind. They have a in scar now that they didn't have before. So they're, But I think it's where they don't sort of, you know, it's not like a primary consideration in their daily life, and half the donors felt they had felt 100% by six weeks. 75% felt 100% by three months, and the last quarter took them as long as six months. Turned out that if the recipient didn't do well, it took you long to recover. Um, you know, it took you longer to get to 100%, which I, you know, probably not surprising. There's a risk of donation. The risk of death has been estimated between one in a hundred and one in a thousand. I think it's probably one in 500 to one in a thousand is is what the actual risk of death is based upon 
sort of what we know from the United States, what we know from worldwide. And I, I think most people are relatively comfortable with the risk of death of 1 in 500, 1 in 1,000. There's also a risk of complications associated with the operation. So liver donation has a risk of death of 1 to 2 in 1,000. Kidney donation has a risk of death of 1 in 3,000. And donating your bone marrow has a risk of death of 1 in 10,000. So these selfless acts, you know, do have a, a risk associated with it. I assume ha- donating blood has some finite risk of death associated with it. You, you take get in your car and go to the blood bank. And so there's a risk of dying while in your car, but it's smaller than these numbers. But you can see that liver donation has a significant risk of dying associated with it, as does kidney donation, but where liver donation is higher. So a one in 1,000 chances of dying, smoking 70 packs of cigarettes, living six years in Boston, 10,000 miles. I don't know why Boston came in there. So I got this off the Internet, of course. 40,000 miles in a car, 10,000 miles on a bicycle. Six-pack of 12-ounce cans of diet soda a day for 10 years and working one year as a commercial fisherman. So just, you know, people... And you think, well, what's my chances of dying one in a thousand? Well, it sort of just gives people an idea of sort of what, what it looks like. And then there's this question of what is acceptable risk? Is one in a hundred acceptable risk? Is one in five hundred, one thousand, one in three thousand, one in ten thousand? What is acceptable risk? So initially when the estimates of that the risk of death of donating liver was one in a hundred, there was sort of a lot of anxiety over that in the medical community. People thought maybe that was too high. And when we asked donors what they thought, what they'd be willing to do, it was sort of interesting. I gave a talk similar to this at a conference, a nursing conference, and they had one of those audio response systems where you, you know, the nurse people that responded, and I asked People, what you know? What was what risk were they willing to so take? You know, one in a thousand, one in a hundred, one in ten. One in ten was the winner. I said, well, "Gosh, I, I mean, I was like probably like you guys done one in ten. And anyway, so one of the people came up and afterwards and said, "You shouldn't be surprised by this. First off, is that talking to a, a room of nurses." who are women used to sacrificing. Um, they're, they're sort of used to pain. And they're thinking of their child and not their spouse. <laughs> so I, I got educated. And it, it turns out that donors are sort of willing to take a, up to a 20% risk of dying. And that's, you know, there's, there's, it's pretty remarkable what risk of death people at least say they're willing to take. It's obviously, there's this discrepancy between what the medical community is willing to say is okay and what a donor is willing to say okay. And, you know, our decision is, is on some level paternalistic. We're making, we're saying, well, that, you're crazy, you can't take that risk. But at the same time, that's what, the, what risk of death people say they're willing to take. There's a risk of having a complication of the surgery. So there's a risk of getting infection in, say, the, the incision or the urine, bioleak, pleural effusion, hernia, and other ones. And these are all data that came from this large um, study of these nine uh, transplant centers that were performing liver, living donor uh, liver transplantation. 
This is what we call double equipoise. So equipoise is sort of this trade-off of risks and benefits. And when we think about what we're trying to do here is that the what we're trying to what the donor's trying to do is take risk to provide benefit to the recipient. So the donor is going to take risk, take a risk of dying, risk of complication. The donor wants to have a successful outcome in the recipient because that's why they donated. The donor wants to have a successful donation. They don't want to die, nor do they want to have a complication. The recipient wants to minimize the donor risk. And, and so when we talk to recipients, and you know, we, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but say, well, you know, you can take more risk and the donor can take less. And almost always, always, the recipient says, I'll take more risk. And the donor, to get, so the donor takes less risk. But the recipient wants to have the, minimize the donor risk and have a successful donor outcome, but they also want to have a successful transplant because they don't have a successful transplant, then the donation was in vain. And, you know, they're, they're obviously worse off than, than what they were. And so this is this tension sort of between the donor and recipient trying to understand who's going to have the the best outcome with the minimum risk. And we try to minimize the risk of the donors are, is both our goal and the recipient's goal. And, and we're, we and the recipients are willing to sort of transfer more of that risk to the recipient. So was there a balance between the donor risk and the recipient risk? There's, you know, again, you know, we would always put all the risk on the recipients if we could, but the only way to do that is not to have anybody donate. So that doesn't work. So it turns out one example of minimizing the donor risk is it turns out that the complexity of the operation amount of liver removed increases with different when we offer different parts of the liver so we have the lateral left lateral segment the left lobe and the right lobe are sort of the three different size parts of the liver that we can end up taking out of somebody to donate to somebody else and the lateral segment's about 25% of the liver. This is where living donors started, was taking out this relatively small portion of liver, taking it out from a parent and putting it into a child. The left lobe's about a third of the liver, and we can take the left lobe from somebody who's big and put it into somebody who's small, and that'll be an adequate liver. The right lobe's about 66% of the liver, and so if you're big and the donor's small, we're going to have to take the right lobe of the liver from the donor, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So these are lateral segment is this area of the liver here. You can see it's relatively thin, and it represents about 25% of the liver. This is the left lobe here. So here's the lateral segment, 25%. The left lobe is there. That's about a third of the liver. And then the right lobe is about two-thirds of the liver. And so it turns out that it appears that the complications and the risk of dying may be related to the size of the liver that somebody donates. So there's been about 15,000 living donor transplants done worldwide. If you look at the number by country, I would say Korea is probably does the most China is not quite as much, despite their population. <laughs> Japan, Taiwan, uh, because they don't have deceased donor transplant for the most part. And I once went to Taiwan. They invited me to Taiwan to give a talk. And, and I realized that they, at that hospital, they did more living donor transplants than we did in the whole United States the year before. <laughs> so in, in areas where there's no deceased donor transplant, then 
that's why there's so many, you know, we're only doing three to 400 a year, and there's 15,000 liver transplants have been done worldwide. And so that's how we know sort of this risk of death is about one in 500. There appears to be more deaths associated with donation of the right lobe than the left lobe. And there's also more complications. So the more liver you take out, it turns out that the more complications you have and, and the lateral segment, the segment we would use in a child, is actually the safest in the donor. Um, the left lobe graft about the, was about a third. The rate of complications is about half of what it is if you take the right lobe graft. And the right lobe graft has, donors of the right lobe graft have the highest risk of complications. And so there's this benefit-risk ratio for the recipients. And it's really what, if you get a small piece of liver, how are you going to do versus getting a larger piece of liver? And then what role does the does graph size play an outcome? And this is one of the controversies. It's clear that if you have a small donor and a large recipient, that that liver may not be big enough for that recipient. And, and it's not that it won't grow. It's just that during that early period of time when we expect very rapid liver growth, that, it, that the liver won't grow during that period. And so the liver is, is stunning in its ability to grow, and the recipient does poorly. So the, the liver can actually be too small, and so though the complications may be less for the donor, the recipient outcomes are going to be uh, less good because that liver is just not big enough and it doesn't have that chance to, to grow up to be the size that they need. There's been a lot of discussion about you know the small graft versus the large graft, and, and there's studies that suggest that it's not a predictor of outcome, but everybody knows that at some point it, it becomes a predictor of outcome. It's just within sort of the parameters that these people use to select the organs. It didn't, they were smart enough so that it didn't influence outcome, but we know that it does. So we had started out our program doing mostly right lobes and then had sort of come to this consideration that maybe the left lobes were safer and then switched to doing more left lobes because we felt we were able to get some of the recipients through despite getting a left lobe, and that was safer for the donor. And it turned out our outcomes from the left and right lobe were pretty much similar. I do think that, you know, obviously there's some selection bias that happens here. We make decisions about, you know, who we think is can can do uh, well with the left lobe, and we've gotten better at predicting it over time. And then this is the graph survival in the recipient of the left lobe and the right lobe. And this just talks about looking at different graph weights and recipient weights, and you can see that people that get a left lobe, they get a graph that's smaller than people that get a right lobe. And, but the outcomes seem to be fairly similar in terms of the recipient outcomes. The donor outcomes are also fairly similar in terms of if you look at complication rates, there didn't seem to be a huge difference in complication rates between people that donated the left lobe or donated the right lobe. And so this is, you know, sort of our volume of living donor liver transplants at UCSF. You can see that we've increased over time. And I think part of that was uh, coming to sort of a realization that, you know, we weren't doing enough with living donor transplants. And one of the things that um, we do on a regular basis is when a patient on the wait list dies, a email goes out to the whole team and to say, you know, this patient died. And so, you know, you tend to recognize that people are dying without transplants, and so we try to do our best to, to get people transplanted, and living donor transplant was one, is one way to do that.
So anyway, we recognize there's a risk of death even in these low meld patients, and our median meld at the time of transplant is greater than 30, and we have these progression of patients from a low meld to higher meld, and, and we lose a lot of patients sort of who don't have a living donor who, we, who have a low meld, and then as we talked about, sort of have this catastrophic or chaotic event where all of a sudden they get too sick and we can't save them. We get a call from the emergency room. They're in the emergency room dying. And so what we're trying to do is just prevent that band of people uh, dying while waiting, and, and it really is trying to get these people that have a low MELD score, too low to get a transplant, and get them a transplant. So we have a frank discussion with the patient, the recipient, about the risk of dying without a living donor transplant so that you know everybody understands what the issues are in terms of uh, their risk of dying. And you know we basically talk about the MELD score and what it means and you know sort of this catastrophic events. And so then we've also tried to decrease the barriers for the donors to come forward. One of the ways we do that is we have this web page you can go to and fill out your form. And one of the interesting things about that is that we get a lot of people filling out forms. I think, you know, they just say, oh, I'll donate, I'll donate my liver to, to Fred. He needs one. And then but they sort of think it's sort of like donating a unit of blood. And so what we've decided is that there's a, we have a simple test to see whether or not the person is actually interested. And what we do is we give them a, send them a lab slip, you know, an email with a lab slip. And the lab slip allows them to go to their local lab at our cost, no cost. They just have to go to the local lab, local lab, you know, the lab core, Quest, you know, they're all around in, in many places. And we just ask them to go and get their blood type done. Simple. A lot of people don't do it. So we screen out a lot of people based on, they just, you know, they sort of get excited, and, but then when they learn about it, they just, and that, that's a signal to us. It saves us and them sort of the troubles of, of coming forward when they think they want to be a, to be a donor. And so we've, we've sort of decreased the barriers to donor, and, and we had one fellow who, uh, whose wife needed a transplant, and he went online and his Facebook page and said he would give his, his truck if somebody would give his wife a liver. Well, that's, that's illegal. You can't give somebody your truck even if your wife needs a liver. Um, but we got 2,500 applications. Got, you know, and of course it hit you know, the news and got all call people. And so we had 2,500 people. And so then we had to write them all a letter and say, or email and say, you can't, there's no truck here. <laughs> and if you want to donate, here's a go get your blood type. Well, that, that crashed. <laughs> All of you were looking for that truck, I think, which sort of comes to the issue about whether we should be paying people to donate or not. But it's, um, we just try to decrease these barriers. Sometimes we make it too simple and we have too many people that you know think they want to do it, but then we find out who really wants to do it. Just, whether they go to their local blood bank. Our ability to use left or right lobes decreases the number of people that we say can't donate because there's a problem with the anatomy of the livers. Because if sometimes we can use the left side if the right side anatomy isn't good. Sometimes we can use the right side if the left side anatomy. So we're trying to do our best to get um, people transplanted. And this is sort of the different reasons um, why... We've been had seen an increase in living donor transplants. Um, University of Pittsburgh has actually done really well. They've 
increase their number of living donor transplants to I think about 70 a year. You guys may have seen the commercial on TV. They had a commercials national, or I think I think it was a, like a somebody's in a tunnel and there's you know you can shine the light in or something. I can't remember what it was. Something like that. Anyway, it was it was it was actually a very impressive commercial, and they had a lot more people come forward to be what we call non-directed donors, where they somebody just wants to donate their liver and they don't have a particular recipient in mind. It's sort of the you know, obviously it's sort of like donating a unit of blood and that people want to help somebody. And we have probably more people that come forward who want to donate a kidney without having a particular recipient in mind. And then we also have that in, in liver transplantation and where, you know, somebody wants to, to donate a liver. And, you know, if they have, you know, all the right motivations, and obviously we screen them uh, very carefully to make sure their motivations are, are what what is driving them seems to be reasonable, then we would allow them to donate. So really what we're talking about in this world of living liver donation and living kidney donation is the same, except liver donation has a higher risk of complications and has a higher risk of dying. Is this really balance of donor risk and recipient benefit? And we're really trying to shift some of the risk from the donor to the recipient, but at the same time, if we make it so that the donor takes very little risk, then we don't we have more people recipients dying. If we, you know, sort of say we're gonna transplant more recipients, then we run the risk of having a donor with a death or or more complications. And so it's just there's no right number here for balance. It's all sort of a judgment call and we obviously have a team of people that help us decide whether or not they think the a donor is is able to donate, and part of that is based upon the input from what's called the living donor advocate, which in our situation is a social worker. It's a social worker whose only job is to basically decide, you know, of people that want to be donors, which of them, you know, have sort of all the things that are necessary to be a donor because you have to have somebody willing to take care of you afterwards. You obviously have to understand what you're doing, and, and so we have full evaluation, and then in some of the patients, um, we have a psychiatrist that evaluates them also. They get inv- evaluated by a nurse practitioner, and then a whole team of people um, make a decision about whether or not we should uh, proceed uh, for the, to the next step in terms of uh, having continuing their evaluation for um, donation. And so it, I think we have sort of the right balance, but there's never the right balance. The best right balance would be to have more deceased donors, and then we wouldn't have to do living donor transplants. So in summary, people die while waiting for their liver transplant. The right lobe donation has more risk than the left lobe. A small for size syndrome, which is when you get a piece of liver that's too small and can't grow, increases the risk of the recipient of a left lobe graft. I didn't talk about this, but there appears to be ways that we can decrease the risk of to the recipient who gets a left lobe graft. But we're always trying to look to shift the risk from the donor to the recipient best we can. And, and obviously the recipients feel strongly that that's, that's the right thing for them also. And there's our liver that we divide. Okay. Questions? I'm sure you guys got lots of them. Yes, ma'am. To, so the question was why did Taiwan and other Asian countries... I'm, I'm supposed to report, repeat the questions. I'll, I'll do that. Though everybody heard you. Um, and a couple of reasons. One is hepatitis B is... It is a major driver for liver transplantation in Asian countries, so there's a lot more hepatitis B, in particularly in China, Taiwan. 
and Korea. Uh, hepatitis B obviously influences the liver two ways. One, it causes cirrhosis. Two, it causes cancer. And so a lot of the transplants there are done for cancer. You have to remember we did um, about 6,000 liver transplants in the United States. They don't do near that number, but there are centers where they do kind of one a day on average. So there's, but if you don't have a donor, you don't get a transplant and you're going to die. And so I think one of the things is that when we have people who are a recipient, they say, well, I might be able to get a deceased donor transplant. I'll take my chances rather than asking my friend, my son, my daughter, my wife to donate. But it's a big risk because in, and the son and the wife and the daughter and whoever else may want to donate. And we, you know, part of it is, is trying to have the recipients understand the benefit of getting a transplant versus you know, dying without a transplant or getting very sick before you get a transplant. So that's sort of the difference. So the question is, is that how many, sort of what percentage of liver transplants are done in people with cancer? And then are there people that, whose cancers are too far advanced? So in the United States, about 25, so when we talk about cancer of the liver, we're talking about a cancer that arises in the liver, not a cancer that spreads to the liver but a cancer that arises in the liver is called paracellular carcinoma or primary liver cancer. And it's, they're really associated with cirrhosis of the liver, or at least severe fibrosis. So people with hepatitis B, people with hepatitis C, and now one of the new epidemics we're seeing is fatty liver, and those people are all at risk for developing cancer. So about a quarter of the total number of transplants done in the United States are uh, done for people with liver cancer. It's probably... We probably do more, in a percentage basis, probably do more patients than that with living donor transplants, but it's not a huge difference. The cancer, cancers tend to start small in the liver and then grow. And if you're lucky and we find you when the cancer is smaller, you have screening, you know, you have hepatitis B and you get screened and they find a cancer. Small cancers tend to do well after transplantation. Um, larger cancers tend to have spread, even though we can't find the spread. A very large cancer will have a high likelihood of spreading. And so if there's cancer in the bones or lungs or elsewhere, we won't do a transplant. If the, if the cancer is very large or looks like it has characteristics that would make it um, at, at risk for spreading, we won't do the transplant. Well, those people, we tend to give them therapy to shrink the cancer and then gives them some time and see whether or not the cancer shows up. So people that have these who have metastatic cancer from their liver, tend to, the cancers tend to show up fairly quickly. And so if we can sort of allow, shrink that tumor and get it down to a small size, and during that time no other cancer shows up, then we would go ahead and transplant that patient. But about a third of the people that we start on that sort of plan end up having cancer that's that's beyond the um, the the criteria. They develop you know cancer in their lungs or bones and those things. So we we, we have a, sort of this whole selection process. I think maybe Dr. Yao is going to talk about it, and he'll tell you more about that. Okay. So the the question was how how can the donor survive without liver? We just take out part of their liver. So. The liver hypertrophies, 
after we take it out. You're, all of our liver is probably doing this all the time. You know, our livers are probably changing size depending on what we eat or don't eat or those kinds of things. And, and the, the growth of the liver actually happens very fast. It probably starts within minutes, if not hours, to start growing. And we can sort of follow with blood tests and watch it grow. So what happens in the in the donor is it's not like they grow, it's not like a starfish where you cut off an arm and grow a new liver. That remaining liver gets bigger and bigger until it's the size that they need, and that, that growth happens very fast. The other side of the liver that we took out and put into the recipient, it also has that ability to grow it, and so it will also grow to the size that the recipient needs. As long as there's, you know, the, the we talked about if the liver is too small, there's too much blood going through it, that can delay the growth. But those are the reasons why we're able to do this: is that that liver can grow because we're we could leave a donor with a, you know, a third of the normal liver, and it will grow back to the size that they need. What about the nerves? So the question is, what about the nerves? The liver, it turns out the liver doesn't have much in the way of nerves. There's nerves that go to the capsule of the liver, and there's nerves that go up to the gallbladder and things that probably tell it to contract and do those kinds of things. But the liver itself, if you look in sort of the structures that actually go up in the liver, there aren't any nerves. So we don't have to worry about nerves. Kidneys have the same thing. They have nerves that go to the kidney, but they seem to do fine without it. In people that get a heart transplant, they also don't have, we don't reconnect their nerves, and their hearts tend to beat a little bit faster than everybody else because nerves, our nerves actually slow our heart down. But now if you get a hand transplant, you need the nerve because if without sensation, the hand's not useful. Um, so in that situation, we, the nerves are reconnected and actually do pretty well in terms of regrowing, even if it's been a, quite a bit of time. So, so blood type is really the major issue um, in terms of compatibility. So a donor that's O can donate to any other blood type. A donor that A is A blood type can donate to an A or an AB, but not an O. And a donor whose B can donate to a B or an AB, but not an O. And an AB can take a liver from anybody, but it can only donate to an AB. So that's, we follow the same rules as, as basically as blood transfusion. So that's, you know, if we look at people who we rule out, blood type has a lot to do with it. Now we do have, you know, as in kidney transplant, I think Brian talked about, you know, exchanging and, you know, between people with different blood types and trying to find, you know, somebody can donate to that person and then they can donate to, to another person. We try to do that. It's hard, much harder in liver, living donor liver transplantation. If we looked at the next thing that probably rules out most is actually the CT scan. So... You know, all our livers are put together differently. You know, it's a common pattern. They're common patterns. But some, sometimes, you know, we talked about the left lobe being, you know, a third of the liver. And sometimes it's only 25%. And then that situation, the, that left lobe is too small for the potential recipient. And if we took out the right lobe, that we would be worried about too much about the donor safety. We have a cutoff of about third. So, so that is another thing that this, the, the sort of, anatomic variations in the liver, the number of blood vessels, the number of bile ducts, those kinds of things that we evaluate with our scans beforehand so that we know what the anatomy is. And then some of the people just, you know, don't have good anatomy. So I would say those are two major things. The other things are, you know, sort of find out somebody has fatty liver disease. 
So, you know, when even people with BMIs in the, you know, 25 to 30 range, which is not considered to be, it's obese, but not, you know, super obese, those people actually, a lot of those people have, people have fat in their liver and, and that will rule them out. If they go and exercise and lose weight, then that fat disappears very quickly from the liver, but that's another thing that rules people out, people that just can't get rid of the fat in their liver. So those are kind of the things that, you know, there's many other things, but those are sort of the top three, I think, things that would probably exclude people. So the question is, is that somebody who gets a fatty liver from a donor, can we prevent that fatty liver? And and so it's more it's more realistically we more we see it more in deceased donor transplant because if we think that the risk to the donor if their liver has a significant amount of fat and we we don't do living donor they don't donate unless they get the fat out but in you know our population of people who are heavy and you know have something happens a stroke or heart attack or whatever leads them to be a donor a brain dead donor say there's a they can have a significant amount of fat in the liver. It turns out that it's probably more driven by the recipient issues in terms of their lifestyle, um, in particular how heavy they are. Um, those kinds of things actually influence more than than the the donors having fat in it. Because we know that almost everybody can get the fat out of the liver if they lose weight. Goes pretty fast. Not not true for everybody, but most people can lose lose it if they lose weight. The risk of sort of having a bad result with fatty liver is actually right after the trend, you know, within hours of the transplant. That a friend of mine in, he says it's like, you know, when when he cooks risotto, he always takes it off the stove and lets it cool, and the fat all congeals because <laughs> it, it and that's probably what happens in the liver when we go and cool the liver you know we cool the liver so so that it can we can transport it. that fat probably ha, ha, there's some biochemical changes that happen in that fat and it and so then when we warm it back up it's not the same and so people are actually trying to do it now without taking without getting the livers cold at all um, and that's you know there's machines we can put them on now or so because so, we think that maybe it's that period of cold that might be bad it hasn't been proven yet but I think that's it's an it's it's if they do well early on then whether they get recurrence their fatty liver disease depends on their lifestyle and those kinds of things we know that we can actually you know with bariatric surgery where you do you know re- have people weight loss surgery that those people actually not only can lose a lot of the fat of the liver their livers actually can get better the scarring of the liver can get better so we know that you know we if you just take care of the underlying problem can mostly get those people better so the question is is that when you um when we take out a liver and it regenerates in the donor do they grow a new right lobe, or does the remaining left lobe just get bigger? And it's just the main left lobe gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets to the size. They, you don't sort of regenerate the right lobe. You're just increasing the mass of liver cells. The liver cells just multiply until they reach the size that you need. So the question is, is whether or not we, how much of the recipient's liver do we take out? Almost always we take out the whole liver and replace it with just the lobe of the donor's liver. There are some situations where people have left in part of the liver, and and one of the goals there is that there's a thing called um, fulminant liver failure where people's livers fail 
all of a sudden. It's uncommon. The most common thing that causes it is that in the United States is probably Tylenol. So people have a Tylenol overdose. But then, and particularly in younger children, there's frequently no identifiable cause of why they their livers failed. And it turns out in those recipients, if you give them part of a liver, and this would typically be a split liver, that liver basically acts like a dialysis machine, can sort of keep them going, and then all of a sudden they have time for this other liver has time to recover and regenerate. And the, and now that we stop their immunosuppression and that liver, the, the liver that they got, that's a foreign liver, actually shrinks down. We One patient, we had to take it out, but, but the it's sort of, you know, what we're trying to do is, is let that person have their own liver back so that they don't have to have the immunosuppressive medications. And it works. It's kind of like a rare event, but it's one of the things that sort of you talk about, you know, anatomy and, and you know, trying to what you can do. Those are some things that can actually be done. How many times can somebody donate? Once. <laughs> their liver. Yeah. Now, we have had people donate their part of their liver and then a kidney or a kidney and then part of their liver. So, and so there are, you know, it, but you can only donate one your liver once. Why? It doesn't regenerate. It doesn't, remember, it doesn't regenerate, it just gets bigger. And so what happens is that there's the, when we do the surgery, we, we have this place where we go in the liver and we can divide the right side from the left side or the lateral segment from, and, and that, that plane is gone now because that, and all, all that's happened is that liver has gotten bigger. Now, theoretically, somebody could donate the lateral segment and then donate the little remaining left side. I don't think it's been done, but it, and it probably has to do that one is that that little remaining left side is too small, even though that's regenerated, because the regeneration is going to happen both in the right and the left lobe. So the question is, is the medical risk of donation in liver higher than kidney? And the risk of death is definitely higher. There's, there's, you know, it's the problem is you, it's hard to compare sort of these apples and oranges. But if you look at com, surgical complications, they're actually pretty close in terms of, you know, what are the complications associated with the surgery. Um, the one thing that the people that donate a kidney nowadays tend have laparoscopic surgery, so they have scopes and there's not big incision down, you know, like a cesarean section, you know, transverse incision above the pubis. And people that have living, liver donation tend to have um, open operations or sort of more pain associated with that. So, but it, the actual, you know, infections and hernias and those kinds of things are actually relatively close. Not so much with the liver and the heart. The liver and kidney, for sure, they're, they're teammates. And you know when the liver starts to go down, they, they, it brings typically will bring the kidney down with it, um, which is why a measure of kidney function is important in terms of the score of the MELD score. So it has a kid measure of kidney function and then two measures of liver function, and those are those things are what drives it. So, but <clears throat> the liver and the heart. Um, what happens when you have cirrhosis is your heart works a lot harder, but it does. It seems to recover well, and as long as you don't have coronary disease or those kinds of things, it seems to do okay. It's it's mainly sort of keeping up with sort of the circulatory demands that the liver failure puts on the person. The question is, is that and I, I haven't cut a liver in the kitchen since I was a kid. My mother used to serve liver all the time. I don't know if that had to do with what I ended up doing in my life or not, but I sure didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't really, that li- I could smell that liver and onions coming in the house. Oh my gosh, not again. 
Anyway, so yeah, so we, the, you know, when we cut the liver, we go through it with um, so a, a device that sort of separates the blood vessels from the liver parenchyma, and then we clamp off the blood vessels and put clips on and, and sort of just come down and divide the left from side from the right side and then take out, you know, the side we're going to use and then close up the bile ducts and the blood vessels and those kinds of things. Blood clots are actually most common um, place for blood clots are actually in the leg. Um, and so people that donate a liver or have any sort of general surgery operation or orthopedic operation are all at risk for developing blood clots. So if you get a hip replacement, you're at risk of blood clot, knee replacement. Any, so any operation puts you at risk of blood clots, but they're primarily in their leg, and the risk is that those blood clots break off from the leg and go to your lung, and then they can sort of stop the blood flow out of your heart and you die. So it is a big risk, and so one of the things that we do is to put sort of stockings on the legs, and they're hooked up to a pneumatic device, and they squeeze the legs, and then we also are really big in getting the people out of bed and walking as soon as possible. Okay, great, thanks. You're a great audience. Great question. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.